0: Yeah. Friends, I liken this moment to the your brains feeling the way bodies feel after a day at the beach. There has been so much bright light shining in terms of teaching, mentoring, learning, and making. I know that there is a certain collective physiological underflow of energy, and I am hoping that the very excellent program before us will rejuvenate us before it is party time. I've just got a few announcements, and then I shall get out of the way. The first of that set of announcements, sometimes at events people wait until the end to say five, Thousand thank yous, and by the four thousand two hundred and eleventh thank you, a certain, shall we say, blasé exhaustion has set in. And so we love at this bridge in the event to give out some somewhat earnest and somewhat arbitrary appreciations. And so join with me in making a lot of noise on a few different fronts. Anyone who has been here today and seen the facilitating, the teaching, the mentoring, and the making, can we get the biggest love bomb for anybody who did any of those acts of leadership and teaching? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, amazing. We were in awe yesterday that we had 20-something percent of our participants facilitating at this event, a point of pride and a number we're going to keep trying to push upward. Uh, On a random but critically interesting note, we have a statistical anomaly at this festival that has never happened in the history of Mozilla, which is that we have two people named Jess at this event who are having birthdays during Mozilla Festival. Huge birthday love bomb to Jess Klein and Jess Steimer. Yeah, yeah, happy birthday. Give him some birthday love at the party tonight. And then three folks, and again, there are so many people we wish we could thank by name, but three folks that really stood out today as embodying what we really consider the spirit of the Mozilla Festival if you were down on floor one and you saw a very interesting looking individual with a beard surrounded by children in a somewhat pied piper like way making 3d avatars for minecraft printing them out and folding them max ogden you rocked that floor and lit those kids up max ogden thank you so much that was awesome Another individual, but I name him in conjunction with the very fine organization that he is a part of. Uh, Tim Riches and the Digital Me folks continue to embody the community values as they do open badging and just bring all kinds of love and innovation in the badging arena. Huge love bomb to Tim and the whole Digital Me team. Thank you all. Get to know those folks. They've got a good thing going on. And a very specific one from the uh, the open journalism, open data floor. Big love bomb to Joanna Geary from Guardian, who just lit a lot of people up and created some incredibly concrete outcomes in her session. Joanna, thank you so much. Make noise for Joanna. Thank you, friends. Perfunctory but important announcements. We are, as an act of human kindness, starting not at 9 a.m. tomorrow, but at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Yeah! How's that for some innovation, friends? But wait, there's more. I'd like to predict the future. At quarter to the hour tomorrow, there will be at least one earnest individual sitting in this room feeling good about being here on time, but being the only earnest individual in this room at quarter to the hour, because in their personal timekeeping universe, it is quarter to 10, but In the reality known as UK time zone, it is in fact quarter to nine. Friends, it is the night we fall back in the United Kingdom, so please, as a public service announcement, remember the time is changing at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning. We welcome you to come early, the coffee will be hot, but we wouldn't want to see you bitter losing that hour of sleep. Yeah yeah. So we will see you. Please do try to be here by 9:45 tomorrow time so we can get rocking and get making all through the day. Couple more and then I'm out of here. Maz Fest is the tag by which you can tell this universe and many networks beyond anything that has gotten made or transpired at this event. So tag your pictures, tag your makes, tag anything that is digitally taggable with the MozFest tag. And if you need any help or support or existential counseling, Moz Help is the tag that'll get you what you need. Finally, these keynotes are going to hop and pop for about an hour. As an act of humanitarian kindness, we are trying to keep it to 60 minutes or less. This, my friends, is the key to another kingdom. There's a party taking place in the O2 Holy Temple of Multifunction Consumption right over here at a place called Alphabet City. Mozilla's hosting a festival party. This is your ticket to the first couple of rounds being on us. Please join us immediately following for drinks and appetizers at Alphabet City in the O2. And it is poor form to steal these badges from innocent children on your way out the door. All right, I am done. I think that is all the announcements that needed making. We do have a very special and I dare say exciting program this evening. It was really quite fun to uh, listen. It was run through earlier today. First, I'd invite you to give a warm welcome. Here to talk about Mozilla's values and how Mozilla thinks about the challenges and opportunities we face as the internet evolves is Mozilla's chief lizard wrangler, Mitchell Baker. Make her welcome. Oh yeah.
1: All right, sorry, the two hands is a little awkward here. Um, Thinking about Mozilla, we do many things at Mozilla, we have many projects, and across all of them, there is a thing that we think of as Mozilla, an approach and a style. So you've seen some of that here today. There are also parts of Mozilla that are not here. So for example, the Firefox work, or the Firefox OS work, there are, more hundreds or thousands of people working on Mozilla projects. And sometimes people think that that's different, that the consumer products or Firefox OS is different from Webmaker in spirit or in style, but we aim to have one Mozilla and to have tenants that guide us all together so that our work makes sense and magnifies what each one of us is doing. And so at Mozilla We are a global community with a shared mission. Sometimes people think, oh, you know, we're a legal organization, we're the foundation, we're MoCo, we're this, we're that. All those legal organizations are irrelevant. The heart of Mozilla is us. The heart of Mozilla is the global community of people who share a common mission. Mark alluded to that mission earlier. That mission is to build an internet that is knowable, that is interoperable, and that is ours. That's open, where we can be makers, and it's ours. And that mission is to build online life where people can know more, do more, and do better. And that goal frames all of Mozilla's activities. That's why we built Firefox a decade ago. And that's why we built Firefox OS. That's why we are developing the WebMaker program. That's why we're looking at all of the initiatives that you're leading here today, is to build that kind of openness and freedom and opportunity into our lives. We also share an approach to how we do these things across the different projects. At Mozilla, we build products, we empower communities, we teach and learn, and we shape environments. And sometimes people think, oh, building, that's over on the Firefox, Firefox OS side. And and teaching, that's on the WebMaker side. And we sort them out by project or organization. But the real power of Mozilla is when all of those things happen together. So with Firefox, our first great success, yes, we built the product. We also empowered communities to go out and do things. And most importantly, to do things without having to come back to some Mozilla person and ask permission. Go do. If you share our mission and you share our goals and you share our approach, go do things. That's how we gain real power. That's how Firefox succeeded. And on the other side, WebMaker often has a teach emphasis, but it's got a huge build component to it. From Popcorn to Thimble to WebMaker to all of the technologies we're looking at, they underlie the teaching aspect as well. And everywhere at Mozilla, the key is empowering more people to do more. Not hanging on, but letting go. Making room for more people to take your place and move forward. And so, at Mozilla, we try to weave all of these things together. And when we are really good at that, we are able to shape environments. With Firefox, we shaped the computing environment of its era. With Firefox OS, we hope to shape the computing environment of the mobile era. With WebMaker, we hope to shape digital learning, teaching, making by doing. And we continue to look for new areas where we might shape the environment. That's why open science is here. That's why games are here. That's why we have a privacy track that we're looking at. And for example, on the privacy side, we are trying to weave all of these strands together. We build. A few years ago, we pioneered do not track. First ability easily to tell advertisers and tracking sites not to track me. Something like 18% of the people in the UK have adopted that. Same in the US, higher in some places, lower in others. Same time, we adopted a more active policy program at Mozilla. For many years I was very conservative. It's clear today we need to be active in policy. And so DNT is coupled with policy work and experiments on cookies and what to do about cookies. Not always right. But starting a conversation, starting many conversations, trying to figure out in the coming environment of data, explosion, and privacy questions, what can we do? What can we build? Who can we empower? What should we learn? What can we teach? And so in just a minute here, I'm going to hand the stage over to two descriptions in the privacy area where we're trying to start more discussions. First, I'll hand the stage to Camille Francois, who's a cyber war researcher at the Berkman Center at Harvard. And she'll talk a bit about privacy and its relationship to fundamental aspects of life that I at least think of as freedom. And then we'll see a concrete, demonstration of something new that we're building, sort of a new product feature, trying to start new conversations about online tracking, what can we know, what can we do. And so these are examples, I hope, I hope you'll find their examples where we're trying to build all four activities into a single area. So if you think about privacy, what products can we build? What technologies can we build? What other communities can we empower to go make change? What do we need to learn? What should we be teaching? And finally, how can we shape the environment so that the data explosion and the privacy concerns move towards a world that's closer to what we wanna see? It's that kind of combined activity that has made real success at Mozilla. And so today, tomorrow, and when you leave, Whatever you're working on, I hope you can give some thought to where your focus is, whether there's other of those strands that can be woven into your work, and overall, how we empower more people to get more things done. And so with that, I'm going to hand it over to Camille.
2: It's a great honor for me to be here. Um, it's also a bit intimidating. I didn't see there were people here, so now it's a bit terrifying. So I'm here to talk about what the web means for us, what it looks like today, what needs to be fixed, and how are going to fix it. And we have 10 minutes. It's always great to hear internet pioneers talk about the web they initially built and how it evolved. I can't do that. I'm not an internet pioneer. I'm not old enough. Basically, I'm part of this generation that people call the digital natives. It's really odd, because two things are assumed about the digital natives. The first thing is that people say it's a generation of people who grew up with the web, and therefore, they must know the web. Sort of makes sense. Second thing that people assume is that the web, for them, is some sort of very stable environment. They grew up with it, it has always been there for them, and they can count and rely on the fact that it will always be there for them. For younger people today, it's even more so. The web now relates to their first girlfriend, and I know people who never done homework without the web. So that's true. I'm part of the first generation to truly live in the web. When I think of the amount of personal information, that is in the web about me and all that I have made transited there and all the things that I use it for, it seems very true. The rest of the two assumptions, though, is bullshit. The whole digital native must know how it works is bullshit. And we know this because the web comes more and more pre-packaged, and people see less and less incentives to look inside the box. And that's not good. That's one of the many reasons I really admire the Mozillians community constant efforts to open the box and to show how the web works to enable people to keep on building the web. The whole the web has and will always be there for you type of thing is also bullshit, and it doesn't make sense. Because the web changes too much. It has evolved too much. Today's web has very little in common with the web that Team Berners-Lee's made in the, the, the 90s. It also has very little in common with the web even five years ago. It's what Anil Dash was saying this morning when he talked about the idea of the web we lost. I want to share a little text with you. It dates back from 1996. John Perry Ballow wrote it. He's a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. I see approval in some people who listen to the Grateful Dead. He's also the co-founder of the EFF. And in 1996, he wrote the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. That says it's some sort of poetry versus the us- you know about the users versus the industry and the state giants, and it says government of the industrial world, you weary giants of flesh and steel, I come from cyberspace. It is the new home of mind, and on behalf of the future, I ask you of the past to leave us alone. You are not welcome among us. You have no sovereignty where we gather. And then he adds, you have no moral right to rule, nor do you possess any methods of enforcement that we have true reason to fear. So that is not exactly what we see in the web today. Today, the web kind of feels like a power struggle. and we could very much see how this power struggle implies both the state and the industry. We sort of understand why, because on the web as it is today, there is more to protect, more to steal, more to sell, there's more at stake. Sometimes, we wish that we could get a glimpse of the future to understand how that power struggle is gonna play out. A couple months ago in June, we got better than a glimpse into the future. We got a glimpse into the present. When Edward Snowden leaked the NSA document, we understood what it was like today. So what did we see? The first thing is that we saw a web in which the power was very, very, very concentrated and centralized. We see that people are handling more and more of their online lives to less and less actors. An example is a challenge that says, can you make a sentence with three actors in it that would make a global crisis? I can come up with, the NSA is getting a lot and a lot of data from Gmail and Facebook. Bam, global crisis. That's a problem. So the other thing we saw is that the law that is supposed to prevent all of this from turning too bad is formulated in very broad terms, and it's secretly interpreted. We don't see the malicious intent behind this, but that's truly no good reason not to worry about it. Our plan cannot be that we will technically, politically, and legally allow the creation of a massive, stored, searchable, durable database on everything people have ever said on the web and then hope that it's not gonna be used against our freedom. That's not a plan. So as of right now, we don't see the scary political project behind it. What we see is a lot of confusion. Confusion is when we step in to have a dialogue. Two examples of this confusion. The first one is that when people started discussing the general legal framework, the U.S. senators who voted these laws stood up and said, I never voted for such a system. Yeah, you did. They're unable to consider the entire puzzle. They need a view source on democracy. There's a problem here. Another good example of confusion is what happened with Tor. Tor is a software that people use to be anonymous on the internet. On the one hand, 60% of its funding comes from the US government via the the State Department. And on the other hand, the NSA, spends a lot of effort and funding into breaking it. They circulate a presentation called Tor Stinks, official name of the document. It's on the Guardian website now. And then they really try to break it. And then they complain about Mozilla effortlessly fixing it in software updates. It's true. (laughs) So this confusion and problematic glimpse at the present, where does that put us? At a crossroads. We got a glimpse of the present, and it is now our duty to say that does not look like the future we want. That does not look like a net respectful of the principles we hold as sacred. Often, people say that democracy is like plumbing. Why? Because you only care about plumbing when there are really bad smells. Democracy in our information society doesn't smell so good right now. And we need some plumbing. Mazilians, we are the great and heroic plumbers of the information society. (laughs) Plumbers doesn't sound sexy, I know. We can also say the architect, the painters, the evangelist, the priest, whatever. What I mean is that this community is in good shape to address these problems. It's well equipped with our knowledge, our motivations, and our values. We talk about privacy, but truly, it's about freedom in general. It's about democracy. What is that thing that we call privacy? Privacy is a fundamental right. We know this because it's in many constitutions, It's in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's in the European Convention of Human Rights, but truly, in our information society, privacy is the thing that enables a lot of fundamental freedoms. In the information society, there is no freedom of press, no freedom of expression, no freedom of assembly, no freedom to protest without privacy. It's tough to think about privacy because it seems very abstract. I like Ibn Mogan's definition of privacy. I'm gonna share it with you because I think it makes it relate to what is at stake. It has three components. It says privacy is truly three different things: secrecy, anonymity, and autonomy. Secrecy is the ability for two people to communicate without others being party to their communication. Secrecy is what being, you know, it's what we are being creeped out about when we say. Stop watching us. That's secrecy problem. Anonymity is the ability to communicate without the source or the recipient being known. Anonymity is what the journalists and the activists say they need to do their work, to bring their contribution to society. The last part is autonomy. Autonomy is the ability to control who knows what about you and who holds the data about you. This morning, we had a bunch of discussions about privacy and someone said to me, I'm very alarmed when I think that someone has all this data about me and maybe someone knows more about me than even myself. And I don't know how this data is going to be used. I don't know if I am going to be manipulated and that freaks me out. That's autonomy. It has consequences on our free, our free choices. It has consequences on our democracy. This is why, ultimately, We talk about privacy, but truly, it's about freedom. It's about our democracy. So these are the pipes we need to fix. Um, There are at least three different types of fixes. And every single thing we do for these pipes and in these fixes is a step in the right direction and it is the right time to take it. Together here at MOSFET is a great venue to do that together. The first is the technical solutions, and Mozillians are so good about this. It can be implementing privacy in the system. It can be a system revealing the privacy issues. There are many technical solutions we can come up with together. The second is policy. Is the shaping the environment part of the problem? Really, we talk about new technologies, and we talk about these new problems, but the technologies are not so new, and truly, It's old principles, old wisdoms, old problems. In the past, people have stood up and say, it's not because states and industries have new powerful technical abilities that they should use them. We have been through that as a society dialogue. This is how we got to nuclear nonproliferation, for instance. So we need to shape that policy debate. And as I'm speaking right now, there's a massive rally in Washington, D.C. of the Stop Watching Us campaign. That's part of the shaping. The third part is education. This morning, someone asked a tough question. This person said, I have a nine-year-old kid, probably using Facebook and Gmail. What do I tell her? That's a great question. People fear it's gonna be complicated because privacy, it's technical, it's legal, it's everyday life, but it's also a state matter and it's also an international matter. But these are also challenges we can and we have tackle in our society. For instance, today, I don't know many kids that are nine years old that can talk about the international legal framework for sustainable development. Anyone? No nine-year-old kid who want to stand up to talk about this? Though what I know is a lot of nine-year-old kids that can talk about pollution and why it's bad. We have been able to translate complicated modern issues in our education, and we have been able to communicate that to kids. It's so important because kids are 20% of humanity and 100% of the future. And together as a community, we can communicate this complicated value and create a generation that will preserve freedom in the information society. So on this, let's make some plumbing together. Let's build and teach the web we want. Let's build cyber peace. I was part of the first generation to live in the web, and I would like to be part of the first generation to truly see it at peace.
3: All right, good evening. Now it's time to cue the plumbers. Uh, we are here to uh, reveal uh, the, the next release of uh, a Firefox add-on called Lightbeam. And uh, so my name is Alex Fowler. I work on privacy and policy at Mozilla. And this is my colleague, Deeth Elza. So I'm just going to say a few words to uh, kind of set up uh, what Lightbeam's about. And uh, then Deeth's going to give you a, a, a live demo, which we really have fingers crossed will work. So I think as you heard from Mitchell and from Camille, this is really a watershed moment for privacy online. Um, and not just in the context of government surveillance. And, and yes, we should have a shout out to our colleagues and uh, friends who are in Washington at the Stop Watching Us uh, rally. And the tweets are flying and pictures and so forth of all the great banners uh, going towards the Capitol. And in fact, they're going to be handing 500,000 Um, letters uh, to uh, folks on the Capitol today, so it's a pretty exciting moment, yeah. Um. And and I'll just say, you know, on the the topic of government surveillance, the way that we learn about what's happening, it's rather unfortunate, it's not observable, it's not transparent to us, so we have to have the courage of uh, whistleblowers to bring light to how Uh, that type of uh, tracking and surveillance is happening on the web. But that's a critical part of the dialogue. But what we're going to talk about tonight is a different form of online surveillance and tracking the commercial uh, third-party web. And uh, so the tool that we built, Lightbeam, it's an add-on for Firefox. And what it does is it shows all the connections that the browser makes to first- and third-party sites uh, online. And the goal here is to really shed light on how how we interact with these sites uh, not just for our users, but to bring that information together in an aggregate so that developers, uh, the industry, publishers can learn more and understand the, the, the diversity of, of actually how the web works. So um, I, I, I will just say one other thing. I'm not sure if Atul Varma is here. Atul, are you here tonight? All right. So this, uh, can you stand up for a moment? Um, I just want to g- recognize Atul because the spark for this project yeah, uh, it's. I, I think it was a, a, a weekend a, a weekend project. Uh, probably lots of coffee and beer involved, and uh, and he he, he uh, put together uh, the first. Uh, kind of tool that, I, for me, when I first saw it, I felt like it was a Wizard of Oz moment. I felt like that curtain had been pulled back and I could see kind of the, the true inner workings of the web. So that was really the, the genesis. Then with the generous support of a uh, grant from the Ford Foundation, we took that uh, kernel of an uh, idea and built it out more, and so re-releasing it as Lightbeam is our way to bring it to a wider audience. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Deeth to do
1: a
4: demo. The light beam watches what gets loaded without your consent. So when you visit a site like Amazon, we have the circle is Amazon, where we navigated, and the triangles are other sites that it has loaded. Now we can also go to uh, the Guardian. Now we can see they have one site that they share, and let's pull up one more. All right now we're starting to see that they share several of these triangles, okay now. I want to uh, I want to show you what it looks like after a week of data. That's a week, a week of data. Now that can be a lot to sort through, so we have filters. That's just today. The last 10 sites. And just the last thing loaded. Now what we've done with it to help you sort through this data is, in addition to being able to filter it, we have different ways of viewing your data. So we can see, over the course of your day, this is going to take a minute because we have a lot of data. While it's loading this, there we go. So over the course of your day, this is the sites that are loaded. Again, the circles are the sites you loaded, and the triangles are the the sites that they load. So you can see which sites were loaded multiple times through your day and what third parties that they've loaded. And we can also get a list view, which gives you a chance to do a deep dive into your own data. And in the list view, we can also um, choose to, to select sites and block them. We can choose to highlight them in the graphs by watching a site. And we can also hide a site. If you know, for instance, that there's a a site that you're OK with, you can hide it from the graphs. From here, you can also choose to to save your data. You can pull it into any program that you want. It's a very simple file format. It's documented on GitHub. All of your data is uh, exportable. It's all transparent. It's all portable. And uh, finally, you can you can choose to share your data, and we've built a a public database that you can share data stripped of personal information. It goes to building a public database of this type of uh, connection data, so that we can use that for research, privacy researchers, data visualizations, and building the next versions of, of. Firefox, and policies based on real user information about these types of third-party connections. Thank you.
3: So thank you, Deep. Um, What I'd like to do is invite you. There's a session tomorrow. What I'd like to invite you all is to participate in this process. You can get access to the add-on at um, mozilla.org slash lightbeam. You can download it, play with it, Uh, you can uh, contribute your information to our aggregate database and then we really hope that you will hack it, build it, make it better, uh, make it your own, uh, and uh, we get more community engagement in this topic. So
5: thanks very much. Thank you. Let's give it up one more time for Camille and talking about our freedom and our privacy. And give it up one more time for Deeth, and Alex, and Atul, and all of the plumbers that are helping us think about our privacy and our freedom. And we are all those plumbers, or those evangelists, or those painters, or those artists. That is what we're here to do, and we are a few amongst many. And so that, I think, is what was right about what Camille said. We are at an exciting moment, uh, it sometimes can be scary, uh, but it also, there's tremendous opportunity in it. And we have those tools, I mean, what's exciting and important about those four pillars that Mitchell talked about, if you just think about the very small example of Lightbeam, we have, you know, it's a, it's a small thing, but we have built quickly something that lets us see what's going on, which has been invisible to us. We have it now as a tool where we can go and teach exactly the kind of thing that Camille talked about where, you know, we can explain this to our children and ourselves. And we have built in that for the first time an open database where we actually can empower and build communities of people who can help us really understand at at a bigger level what's going on. And that is the set of tools that we all have as those plumbers and artists and evangelists as we think about these complex environments that are around us and that we're trying to shape with our values. And that's not a bad spot to be. So, I want to say something and introduce an, another plumber and artist, um, uh, Bethany Kobe from Save by Technology. And the, this, the setting of why I asked Bethany to close tonight is you know, when you think there's two and a half billion of us now on the Internet, you know, two and a half billion times that 10 days of data times 365 days a year times da-da-da-da-da. I mean, we are creating a tremendous amount of data and are, are kind of trying to figure out what that means and all the things Camille talked about. And think about there's going to be six billion people in 2025 uh, on the web and what is that going to mean in terms of figuring that environment out. But then think that in 2025, there also will be a trillion devices connected to the Internet. And we don't know at all yet how to think about that environment, but that is the environment we are walking into. I don't think we even really have a choice about that now. But the choice we do have is to start to think about what that world looks like. And we can sit in fear, and I think certainly sober thought is useful, or we can say, let's actually go and look at the devices that will be connected play with them, start to become comfortable with them, start to make them ours in a way that we can then know and shape what that environment is. And these guys know how to play with that. So I want you to see what they're doing. It gives me a lot of hope.
6: Hello. I'm going to do the podium thing. So my name's Bethany Kobe. I'm one of the co-founders of Technology Will Save Us. Um, we're a small company, but we have quite big, I think, exciting um, hopes for the world of physical technology. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my background and my co-founder's background, just to give you a sense of where we come from. I'm going to talk a little bit about why we started the business, um, the kinds of things we do, the kinds of things we're trying to help others to do, um, and then a little bit about the world we kind of want to help shape. So my background's in branding and innovation. Um, I've worked with lots of really big clients, lots of really big businesses, trying to understand and help them understand a purpose which is connected to society and community, and understand how profit can become a way of actually tying those things and building a greater sense of um, purpose and kind of worth in the world, um, which is very frustrating at times. Um, My partner's background is in physical computing, so he builds a lot of large-scale interactive installations, objects, spaces. Um, So our two kind of skill sets combined are really what has created this business. Our story starts in a slightly unlikely place. Um, So my partner is also my partner in life. He's over there. Maybe he's not here anymore. Anyway, um, (laughs) we have a two-year-old. He's probably with him. Um, So it starts in an unlikely place. It starts in a trash can. We live in Hackney, in what we think a very educated, creative community. Um, One day we came home and we found a laptop in our trash can. And as you can imagine, we were shocked and really confused by this kind of lack of understanding. And this really started a kind of conversation. I mean, the computer was in a bag. It had a fresh install of Windows XP. It had a battery. It was just this kind of ridiculous relationship to to kind of physical technology. And this conversation started about the fact that we have so much technology in our lives, and we don't really understand it, we don't really know what to do with it when we don't want it, let alone actually how to make things with it and be creative with it. And so we set out a challenge to basically could we start a business that actually address some of these challenges, but in a playful, creative, inspiring way. So that's where Technology Will Save Us comes in. We essentially are a haberdashery for technology in everyday life. We're a DIY kit company. We make DIY technology kits that help people learn how to become producers of technology, not just consumers of it. Um, The reason we call it Everyday Life is because we really want to inspire people to make things with physical technology related to things that. They already like doing and themes that they're already interested in. So we design our kits around everyday life themes like gardening and cycling and energy and music and play. Um, we think that it's much more inspiring to actually make tech when it's related to stuff that you like doing rather than just have to learn a skill. So all of our kits are vehicles for education. These are a few of our kits. Each kit has some kind of skill that it's trying to teach, something like soldering, circuitry, or programming, um, but then making something fun or useful in your life. So the one on the top right is a DIY instrument kit. 15 disparate components you follow are very beautifully designed how-to manual. And you solder together the components, and you've made a light-to-sound instrument in about an hour. The one on the left is a DIY synthesizer kit, so no soldering. It uses a breadboard, so introducing people to the idea of breadboards. And you make this really lovely synthesizer. Um, On the bottom right is one of my favorites, um, the Thirsty Plant Kit. You make a um, moisture sensor out of plaster and nails. It's solar powered, a twist circuit, no soldering, so you can actually twist the pieces together. Um, And when your plant is dry, an LED flashes to tell you to water it. Um, and the one on the left is a DIY speaker kit, sold your own amplifier, and explore the materiality of sound by creating speakers out of all kinds of materials. And in this case, in one of our workshops, someone made one out of a balloon, and it was so inspiring, we now include a balloon in all of our kits. Balloons are fantastic speakers, in fact. Um, one really important part of our the way we develop products is that we workshop all of our products with real people, with our communities. So we do lots of workshops where kits are presented to our community, we iterate them, we get feedback on everything from interaction to design. We understand how these skills relate to different people in different walks of life, whether it be young people or people that have never ever made anything with tech can be quite um, daunting. And doing things in community is sometimes a little less scary and we find that to be a really important aspect of this. We also like doing workshops and um, things in community because it gives us a sense of some of these everyday life needs. So for example, um, the image on the left is a pop-up space we did in Whitechapel where an 87-year-old man came to do a five-pound soldering class. And what he really wanted was essentially for us to help him hack his doorbell. He um, He was basically deaf. And he could not hear when people rang his doorbell. So he hacked his doorbell, put an LED in it, and basically could see when he had guests. And these kinds of experiences really confirm that this idea of understanding tech and being able to kind of include it in everyday life is a really important and relevant thing in all kinds of places. So we make all of our kits in London, um, in Hackney, in our space. We source all of the things as close to London as we can. We produce them. We distribute them. We ship them out of our UK office. our studio is really lovely. It doesn't always look like this. <laughs> um, one of, I want to share one really exciting um, product that we just launched last week at Wired. Um, it's part of a collection of some really interesting businesses that you might know. So Mozilla, Nesta, and Nominant Trust. Um, created a fund called the Digital Makers Fund. It's part of a campaign called Make Things Do Stuff. And we applied to this because we've made lots of kits and young people do use our kits. However, those kits were never designed for young people specifically. So with this fund, what we did is we did a collection of user-centered research with young people. So we obviously wanted to understand what are young people interested in, what are they doing, what is their everyday life like. Um, With that research, we basically interviewed and workshopped with 300 young people around the UK in nine different regions. We invent, we created a bunch of uh, kits that we then iterated like we always do with all of our products. We then created resource material to support that and then launched that into our kind of collection of products. So this was a really important way for us to, to include this everyday life research in the, the way we now develop kits going forward. Another important element of this was to actually develop resources that were useful to other people doing things in education with young people. So all of our findings, we created a visual poster that we basically have on our website and is free for anyone to see how this data was captured, what those insights were. Um, And the insights were really interesting. Some things were things that we kind of expected and some things were quite surprising. Um, Young people are making things in school, they like making things, but a lot of times they're making things that they don't care about and therefore they don't really know what they're learning. Um, This was really important for us to kind of understand and really start to to play with. Young people want to make things. Um, They're incredibly inventive. When asked things that they would invent and make, they were everything from robots to do their homework to Wi-Fi to solve problems for them. Um, And the most important thing was a few themes that came out of it. So we had six themes that came out of it. And again, some themes were things we thought would happen, like gaming. And other things were things that we didn't really expect, like food. So of course, once we saw that, we got very excited about kits that involved tech and food. But that's not what we did yet. Um, So we picked three themes. The first theme was gaming, um, which I'm going to show you in a second. The second thing was sports and, um, and basically health, which was a really important element for young people. And the, the third theme was um, socializing and deepening relationships. So we developed three kits, the DIY gamer kit, the DIY mover kit, and the DIY chatter kit. Um, the mover kit, this is some images from uh, workshops we did with the Royal Institution. So this is the first prototype of the Gamer Kit. Um, We workshopped it with 15 different groups of young people to really understand how these skills and tools would be used by them, got lots of feedback to develop the final result. This is the DIY Mover Kit. Again, early prototyping stages, but basically to help and introduce young people to data, and visualizing data, and beginning to understand, when you visualize data, then what can you do with it? What do you understand about yourself and the world around you? And the last one is the DIY Chatter Kit, which is essentially um, like the game Cups, so kind of wireless walkie-talkies that help you to create a local network and start to play and understand socializing and relationships in a really analog sort of way. So the gamer, this was the stages that we went through to develop it. So first is really proof of concept. Can we actually create something? How do we decide what the gamer is going to be? Is it two buttons? Is it a screen? Is it an LCD? Um, The second one is really then, can we workshop this thing? Can we bring it into an environment where we actually get people to start to play with it and understand what we're going to help people to learn? And the last one is the final iteration, which we launched um, last week at the Wired conference and showed last night at the science fair at MozFest. Um, And again, this one is where we actually start to pay attention to kind of design details. We're really interested in creating products and kits that are inspiring and beautiful, not just kind of geeky kits for geeky people. We want them to really inspire people to want to use them. So this is the final gamer. Um, We think it's pretty uh, beautiful. Um, So basically, what it does is it helps people to learn how to make. So you literally solder your own game console. And then you play um, a few games that we launched with it, which were uh, programmed by a a 15-year-old who did some internships with us. Um, So it launches with Pong and Snake, because you have to have Pong and Snake. Um, And you learn how to play the game and then start to understand the functions of the gamer. And then you actually start to code your own games and learn game mechanics to then invent your own games. Um, And the thing that we think is really inspiring about it is that once you start to understand the world of physical technology in these sorts of dimensions, you start to really open up whole new possibilities for young people. Um, this is a small video. Oops. Or not. I think I'm going to skip the vi- Oh, there we go. With no sound, unfortunately. No. I'm not going to subject you to a soundless video. You can watch the video on our website. It's a very exciting video. So I guess most importantly is this kind of vision of the future that we really want to be a part of shaping. Um, We want to be a part of a future where everyone really loves the idea of making technology and can do it because they have the skills to actually make things, and a fearlessness to start. Actually, making things with tech because they've learned what components are. They've actually opened the hood of their physical devices. Um, we also want to be a part of a world where STEAM um, curriculum is being supported and hopefully using our kits and many other businesses like us in the world to really enable young people to start to make with technology, both digitally and physically. And I think most importantly, we think that the world of physical technology doesn't have to be so homogenous. We think that maybe it's a little messy, maybe the world looks a little different, but that our devices might actually be a little more meaningful if we had the skills to modify them and make technology do what we want it to do. And that is Technology Will Save Us. Thank you very
5: much. Can I steal the gamer? All right. Thank you. I just got myself a free gamer. Um, Thank you, Bethany. And just one more round of applause for Bethany and Technology Will Save Us. And, you know, to me, one of the reasons I asked Bethany to come up is this thing is delightful uh, in my mind. I mean, if you, if you play with it, and you might beg them, or if you saw last night uh, what it was, it, it's a thing to, to play with that is just fun. But it also is us starting to be able to get our fingers on this world of a trillion connected devices around us that is emerging. And it may seem very small. And it may seem that many of the ideas that we have in here are very small. I mean, certainly remember when a tool first showed me collusion. It was, like Alex said, a Wizard of Oz moment. And it was just a little Firefox add-on that, you know, came together in, in a weekend. It came from a brilliant person. Uh, but, you know, it's a small thing. And I think that is really important to understand as we look at this environment, these environments around us that are shaping, that are evolving, it is those small and delightful things that we do, whether we do them by teaching, whether we do them by building, whether we do them by bringing other people in, that will add up. Then we go back to what Michelle said this morning about all of us installing Firefox on somebody else's computer and telling them it's safer, it's more private, it's open source. We shaped what the world thought about the web, or a big part of the world. And we started a conversation. And so it is those small and delightful things, which will, all added up, give us the chance to really shape where things go in the future. And so I would actually just ask, how many people started to build something today? Just put your hands up. And how many people learned or taught something? Keep your hands up if you were building. And how many people met somebody new? and became a deeper part of this community that we're growing. The small, yeah! Woo! Thank you Gunner for the reminder. Um, you know, that's what we are doing here. It is the small things we have begun to build, to teach, and the connections with each other that'll let us do really exciting things in the coming year and the coming years. So as you go and get some free uh which I will give you some instructions on momentarily, Remember and keep talking to those people about those things you started to build and learned and taught, and think about how you use the precious eight hours we have together again tomorrow to dig a bit deeper, to plan how you're going to follow up, and imagine how we continue to delight each other and do things that can shape the web. And I know we can. Um, So. Instructions, um, first of all, there is a party, we welcome you to that party uh, and to continue to, uh, to hang with us. It is across the way at the O2 in a place called Alphabet City, I think it is written up there, you go left when you get in. Uh, there are, as Gunnar said, the first few drinks on us and some appetizers. Um, important instruction, you cannot get back into Ravensburn tonight after going to the party. So take your stuff with you, please, uh, and stay as long as you like, up to a point. We may kick you out at, I think, close at 4 AM or something. Um, But yeah, please join us uh, and uh, come back tomorrow morning at 10 AM for another day of making, learning, hacking, and building the web we want. Thanks very much.
7: Everybody, that was day one of the Mozilla Festival, and with the Airtime livestream, we are all going to head up to the party now. If you want to meet us and the Airtime team and talk more and geek out more about broadcasting, open broadcasting, radio, and everything else, yeah, uh, just join us at the party. Um, the Airtime team is there. You can very easy catch us like uh, just head to that person with the crazy blinking flashing LED jacket uh, you can't miss her and uh, uh, if you just want to talk with us and just like run an interview we ran a lot of interviews today uh, uh, we our radio station is still up set up and running tomorrow at day two on Sunday um, at the Mozilla festival so like just come and join us. Um, We are here around the day and uh, just watch for the microphones because that is us, Um, have a lovely Mozilla Festival for everybody out there who unfortunately can't join us um, We are going to upload everything to our SoundCloud playlist So you can listen to all of the live recordings later on tonight And then of course the same thing after the recordings tomorrow um, I wish you all the best have a lovely day and if you want to contact us just hit the hashtag airtime or contact us through at on Twitter. Have a good one. Bye.